It was just over seven years ago. It may have been six years. I was thinking about this, but I think it was just over seven years ago that we had a chance to go to the state fair. Uh, as you know, be living here late August, early September, and that's been long, a Magnuson family tradition. We did that, but this year we did something a little bit different. Um, while we normally would just go and park, uh, this year we took one of those parking rides. And so we pulled up to a parking lot, and a big coach bus is there, and we get onto the coach bus. Now, Lars at this time was either just going on two or just going on three. I think he was just going on two, but that's why I say it was either seven or six years ago. Now, it was cool enough for a two-year-old to get on a coach bus in the first place, right? Because if, if, if you had kids, especially a little boy, you recognize that phase where a bus is really cool, an airplane is even cooler, and then nothing beats a dump truck, right? Nothing beats a dump truck. So, so he, he, he wasn't at the top of the pyramid yet, but he was pretty close. So Lars is getting onto this coach bus. And we're going on, and we pull then um, away from the parking lot, and ultimately we pull into the state fair. And suddenly Lars is completely overwhelmed, completely astonished. Because now he looks out the window of the coach bus that he is on, and he does not see one coach bus or two or three but 10 or 15 or 20 coach buses. And this little two-year-old's mind is blown, okay? And I'll never forget this little boy, this little blonde-headed boy looking out the window. He just kept on saying, bus, 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 bus. And it was like everyone was this fresh sense of awe, of wonder, I, I'm the luckiest kid in the world. I'm surrounded by coach buses. And he just went on. I'll never forget. And, and any of you that have had kids or grandkids or, or just family members with, who have kids, you know seeing life through a little kid's eyes and the wonder they have, the amazement when they taste something delicious, something new for the first time? Whoa. Why is that so wonderful to us as adults? I think it's because, for one reason, awe and wonder is something that's just natural to the human condition. We just love awe. We love wonder. It's, it's why people stand and look at a sunset, and that's just the most beautiful sunset they've ever seen, and they feel in themselves, I can't believe I'm privileged to even get a chance to look at this. Why we see things like sports fans look at athletes use their body in ways that they cannot even fathom doing, and they just their jaw drops. How did he do that? How did he contort his body or jump like that or throw like that? And they have this sense of awe, physical beauty, um, uh, physical conquest, and, and blowing through the limitations of the human body. We are just people who are given to awe, and yet I think there's something about a child's awe that also so speaks to us because, frankly, sometimes we as human beings get so jaded to awe and to wonder. We, we lose that ability or at least something of that ability to look around and truly see the, the marvel that life presents in, in God's creation. And I start there this morning because I think Mark is trying to communicate something to us 
we've been going through this book together, this wonderful gospel, and there's something about Mark that he loves to tell us how people have responded to Jesus. And the thing that Mark keeps on coming back to when he describes how people are viewing what Jesus is doing, he keeps on coming back to marvel, to awe, to wonder, to astonishment. Here are just a few examples. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus has just cast out a, a, a demonic spirit from a man. And listen to what Mark makes sure to tell us. And they were all amazed in so much that they questioned among themselves, saying, what thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commands he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. Mark chapter 2, Jesus has healed a man who is bedridden. And this man arises, takes up his bed, and went, goes forth before them all, in so much that they were all amazed and glorified God, and said one to another, or excuse me, saying, we never saw it on this fashion. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus has stilled a storm. And his disciples, they feared exceedingly and said one to another, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Mark chapter 5, Jesus has healed this young girl. We looked at that story of Jesus healing the young girl. And they were astonished with a great astonishment. Mark chapter 6, Jesus is teaching, and Mark makes sure to tell us, and when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished. Mark chapter 6, at the end of the last chapter that we were in, Jesus walks on the water to his disciples. He went up unto them into the ship, and the wind ceased, and they were sore sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered. Mark is telling us in almost every single chapter, people's minds were blown by Jesus of Nazareth. They were amazed. Now we come to this story. Jesus has, when we saw him last, was in Tyre and Sidon, the coasts on the Mediterranean Sea. And he went from his normal home base of Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee, and he went northwest up to the sea of probably 30 to 35 miles to Tyre, another perhaps 20 miles north to Sidon, to Gentile lands, not Jewish lands. People where the Jews would recognize them as the outsiders. They're not God's people. We are. And Jesus goes there and meets a woman. And this woman has a daughter who is demonically oppressed. Horrible, tragic condition. And she pleads with Jesus to heal her. And you remember, Jesus appears to give her an insult. He says, it's not fitting, it's not meat to take the children's bread. I came for the children of Israel, first and foremost in this age, and to cast it to dogs. This woman could have easily walked away offended. Well, if you're calling me a dog, well, then I've got no time for you, but not this woman. Because what Jesus really was doing was not insulting her. He was inviting her to faith. He, she knew when he spoke to her and he said, it's not meat to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. He wasn't using the word that means the scavenger outside dogs that everyone hated, the garbage collectors. He was referring to her as literally the little dog, the the house dog, and she realized by faith, she says, he's telling me I'm in the house. He's telling me I'm invited under the table. And she says, yes, Lord, it's true, but still the little dogs under the table eat of the crumbs 
of the children's crumbs. And Jesus says, that's exactly what I was looking for. He was inviting and drawing out her faith and said, your daughter's healed. And sure enough, she was. Jesus is inviting people to come into faith. Well, now he goes from the northwest region, far northwest of the land of Israel in the Sea of Galilee, and comes all the way around to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Notice with me here in verse number 31 of chapter 7. And again, departing from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, he came under the Sea of Galilee. So back south and back east. But now he goes through the midst of the coasts of Decapolis. Now, do you remember that word? Do you remember that neighborhood, Decapolis? Decapolis literally means ten cities. It was a region, almost like a county, marked by ten cities. Deca means ten. We think of the Decalogue as another way to refer to the Ten Commandments. And Apollos, polis, what is that? It's a city. Where do we live? Minneapolis, a city. So Decapolis was ten cities. And these were on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Not on the western side like Capernaum was. This was on the Gentile side. And it's where Jesus cast out the legion of demons from that man who we saw only a couple chapters ago in the Gospel of Mark. So Jesus is back in this area. He comes through this, again, this Gentile neighborhood where uh, certainly it was not dominated by Jewish people and Jewish customs. Now notice here, they bring unto him, verse 32, one that was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And they beseech him to put his hand upon him. They're saying, please heal this man. Well, we're going to get into this. Jesus heals the man. But then fast forward to verse number 37. And they were beyond measure astonished, saying, He hath done all things well. He maketh both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. Now, you need to understand something a little bit about what Mark is saying here. When they were saying they were beyond measure astonished. That word astonished has the idea of being struck with awe. It's like we would say in our contemporary word, it was jaw-dropping. There, they were just overcome with this amazement at what had just happened. But then Mark wants to add on to that. They said they were beyond measure astonished. So you say, I'm amazed. And then beyond measure is a word that means overabundantly amazed. Like super abundantly amazed. They were, their minds were blown, we would have said. Now why does Mark keep on telling us this? Why does Mark want us to know that the people who saw Jesus in person could not believe what they were seeing? They said, he does everything well. Let me give you, let me tell you why. Because I've been in, in, in a lot of Christian churches, gospel preaching churches, conservative, traditional, fundamental, evangelical churches. And do you know what happens a lot? We get around to sing the hymns, and it's like a, it's just a schedule that we do. We sing two or three or maybe four hymns, and, and then that is done, and we close our hymnals, 
And then we pull out the Bible and we maybe get a sermon that shows us something cool. Oh, I didn't realize that before. That's a good thought. Oh, I learned something this morning. And you know what we don't get? We don't get astonished. We don't get amazed. We don't marvel. Why is that? What I want to look at this morning is a, su- is a subject I'm going to call a marvelous savior. A marvelous savior. The kind of person who, when he was here on earth, everyone was amazed by him and what he did. And what I want to ask this morning is very simply, if he is the same kind of marvelous Savior to you, that day after day, and when we come to gather here at church and sing our hymns about who he is and hear the word preached, whether that same kind of marvel like a two-year-old on a, on a coach bus saying, bus, bus, Bus is like who we are when it comes to Jesus, the Savior. Let's understand, first of all, what I'm going to call the man's condition. Let's place this in the context in which Mark gives it to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Then we're going to look at the Savior's care for this man, and we're going to close with the people's conception of who Jesus is. The man's condition, the Savior's care. And the people's conception. Notice with me again in verse 32. And they bring unto him one that was deaf. Now, I don't know that we have anyone in our uh, audience here today who is deaf. I spent a number of years, and Tabitha even more than, than me, in Ann Arbor Baptist Church, which has had a deaf ministry for many years. Two of Tabitha's sisters are deaf. And so I have been around uh, this condition of deafness. And there are really three different kinds of deafness. One is a true neurological, true a, uh, a sensory neural, it's called deafness. It's where literally your hearing nerve does not work as it should. There's no problem with the sound getting in. It just doesn't transmit into sound uh, through your hearing nerve. The second kind of deafness that's been recognized is where there is truly a blockage, a blockage. It may be earwax, it may be something foreign, an object in your ear. It may be your bone structure has developed or an abnormality in some way that makes it impossible for you to hear. The third kind of deafness isn't recognized so much in the medical literature. It's called husband-watching-the-ball-game deafness. Um, That's also a well-known one when a man is watching a ball game or doing one of his favorite hobbies, and he doesn't hear anything even if there's a hurricane going on. Um, 22.7% of marital disputes happen with that kind of deafness. Uh, No, I'm kidding. I, I kid. I kid. So this kind of deafness, right? Jesus says that this man was, or Scripture tells us that this man was deaf, and he had an impediment in his speech. Now, if any of you have known someone who is deaf, you have understood that sometimes, obviously, when you cannot hear, it is more difficult to speak or it is difficult to, more difficult to form words. This man, it seems, was not, he was not mute. It, was that he could, it wasn't that he could not produce any sounds. He just could not speak normally. He had an impediment in his speech that undoubtedly was caused by his deafness. Now, We have been dealing as human beings with deafness for an awful long time. 
In fact, you remember back in the Old Testament when Moses was speaking to God about being sent to be his great prophet. He said to God, he said, I, I can't speak. I don't speak well. Do you remember what God said to him? He said, who hath made man's mouth? Or who maketh the dumb? Now, he's not saying intellectually. He's saying someone who can't speak. Who makes the person who's mute or deaf or the seeing or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Going back thousands of years, this has been a natural condition. In fact, they have found a papyrus in Egypt purporting to give a cure for deafness or at least a treatment for deafness. You want to hear what this was? I thought this was rather interesting. Ear that hears badly. Here's a remedy for ear that hears badly. Injecting olive oil, red lead, ant eggs, bat wings, and goat urine into the ears. I don't think that worked very well, though I did see someone suggest that the olive oil actually might have broken up some earwax. If that was the condition, you might have gotten a little bit of relief, but I don't think you would have gotten a lot of relief from something else. So this man has had a diagnosis. There's something that we see about him here. He is deaf, but here's the problem. In that day, there was nothing like we have today in sign language, in the kind of education that we offer to those who are deaf, the deaf were regarded as having an, just an, an extraordinary impediment. And not to classify kinds of, of challenges, but even those who were blind were regarded as kind of at a different level, a different ability to, to function in society than someone who is deaf. Throughout history, yeah, well, exactly, Johnny. If the person who was deaf was viewed oftentimes, of course, entirely wrongly, as being just completely unintelligent and incapable of learning. You go back to Plato, you go back to Aristotle, you go back to the Greeks, and they thought there's actually no real point even investing in a person who is, who is deaf. They're not going to be able to hear, they're not going to be able to communicate, it's not going to make a difference. There's even some suggestion in the, in the ancient literature that there were people who regarded people who had this condition or other kinds of abnormalities, it were better just to kill them as children. I kid you not. Because they, they can't even have a functioning life. There's just no point. And so this person, you can imagine, who's deaf... In an, in an age where there's no real support for that person who cannot communicate effectively and for whom there's no true sign language that is able to communicate openly and communicate clearly. This man had an awful problem that sometimes we don't understand in an age in which I think we have grown in our ability to communicate and to recognize the image of God in people who are deaf. So here's this man's condition. And they beseech Jesus, verse 32 tells us, to put his hand upon him. Now I want us to see, secondly, the Savior's care for this man. This man who has this tragic condition that has him completely on the outside of society. I want us to notice that Jesus does not put his hand on him like the people asked him. He uses one of the most extraordinary and curious means of curing this man that we see in all of the Gospels. Let's read it, shall we? And just pretend that you're reading this for the first time. And he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers into his ears and he spit and touched his tongue. Now, the idea being that he took, Jesus took his own saliva and put it 
on that man's tongue. So he takes him away from everyone else. He puts his finger in his ears. He spits. He puts the saliva on his tongue. He looks up to heaven. He sighs. What's that all about? He sighed. Mark wants us to know that he sighed. The idea is he groaned. And saith unto him, Ephatha, that is, be open. That word, Ephatha. Mark loves to tell us when Jesus, the actual words that Jesus used, and this likely was in Aramaic, Jesus' ordinary tongue. Jesus ordinarily would have spoken in the dialect of, the, of Aramaic. And this likely is that Ephatha, that is, be open. Now, what is going on here? Do you understand why Jesus did it like this? You say, well, Jesus, couldn't he have just looked at him and said, be healed? Of course he could have. Couldn't he have laid his hand on his shoulder and just immediately he would have been cured? Of course he could have. So why did he do this? Go back to the woman that we just looked at who what was seemed to be an insult was actually an invitation. What does Jesus love to bring out in people? He loves to bring out what? Faith. Faith. If you're someone who's deaf, and there's no such thing as sign language for you to communicate, how would you have faith in the man that was in front of you, Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus was effectively speaking to this man in sign language. He brought him away from everyone else so that there would be no question about who healed him. It's not like there was one man in a crowd and he didn't, well, I think it was you, but maybe it was, no, Jesus says, come away from everyone else. It's just going to be me and you. Now, I want you to think about that care that Jesus shown for a man who probably had received no individualized care, no individualized love. Jesus singles him out from the crowd and brings him away. Jesus wanted to get him face to face. Then Jesus sticks his finger in his ears. What kind of sign language would that be to a deaf man? He knows he can't hear. He knows his problem is right here. Now Jesus is taking him and putting his fingers in his ear saying, this is the problem, isn't it? This is the problem. Now you say, the tongue. Jesus spits. He, he wants to communicate that he is the one who is the, 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 the source of this man's cure. And so he takes it and he puts his saliva on his tongue. It's almost as if he's saying, your tongue, it, it, it's not oiled right. It doesn't have the right kind of lubricant to work right. I'm the one who's doing this to you. My tongue is fixing yours. You say, oh, okay. But the, he's communicating something to him. Now what does he do? He looks up to heaven. Now, why, what would that communicate to the deaf man who could not speak, who could not hear? What would that communicate? It's Jesus saying, your cure is coming from up there. God is the one who ultimately is responsible. There is a divine connection between heaven and between me. And then what does he do? He sighs. This man would have seen, he might not have heard Jesus' sigh, but you know when someone sighs, your chest rises and falls, your face expresses the grimace, the groan. What was Jesus saying to him? That God up there, he and I care about you. He and I deeply, emotionally feel what you have been through in this awful condition that has separated you from all of society. Can you, what was he doing? He was saying, believe me, trust me. I'm the one 
who is the solution to your problem. I love this. Jesus could have healed him with a word that he wouldn't have heard. He could have healed him by a touch he wouldn't have understood. But out of love and out of compassion, Jesus reaches out and separates this one who was used to being separated in a bad way from society to give him individual attention, touches his ears, touches his tongue, communicates the love of God to him. And then he says, Ephatha, be opened. And look at what happens. And straightway his ears were opened and the string of his tongue was loosed and he spake plain immediately. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. I want you to imagine that a person who was deaf was cured immediately. You would not expect that person to be able to speak immediately properly. You would have to be retrained to know how to speak, to hear things and formulate them into sounds using your tongue and your soft palate and your jaw. How do you make these sounds? Not this man. In other words, Jesus not only immediately cured the deafness, he cured the ability to form sounds and communicate in the language of his time. And can you imagine the shock of everyone who was there? This man, who all they knew of him was he could not hear, and he made unintelligible sounds. He had a speech impediment. Now suddenly is not only hearing, he is speaking completely, legibly, and plainly, and audibly. Can we pause here for just one moment? Can we recognize that Jesus' sigh was not merely a, a kind of object lesson to that man? It was what he deeply felt. It was what he deeply felt. What I want to say to you this morning is simply this. Mark also wants to communicate that Jesus deeply feels for the people who he came to save and to redeem. I just want you to think of this picture. You see, Jesus didn't have projects. He had people. And do you know the difference? How often do we as human beings have projects? We want to fix people. Pastors want to fix people. We want to fix our husband. We want to fix our wife. We want to fix our kids. We want to fix that annoying coworker. And they're projects to us. Oh, I got I to help this person again. What a burden it is to be a minister like this. Jesus didn't have projects. He just had people. He had people that he loved. He had people that he sighed over. That were not just burdens that, oh, you know what, I'm gonna, I gotta go do this again. No, he felt it to his very core because they were human beings made in the image of God. And friends, whenever you and I start to think that we've got projects to work on, fixing the people around us, recognize Jesus had people in his eye, people who bore the very image of his Father. And therefore, he loved them. Do you know, friend, he loves you just like that? Do you know no matter what impediment you're facing in your life, no matter what grief and difficulty, no matter what trial or tribulation you're suffering under right now, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He still sighs over your difficulties. 
He still groans under the burdens that you are facing. Uh, uh, scripture tells us because we have a merciful high priest, one who feels deeply everything that we feel, he said, let us go boldly to the throne of grace. Let us approach him with full assurance that he cares about everything that you're experiencing right now. You're not a project to him. You're a person for whom he died and now who he deeply loves. That's the wonderful compassion of our Savior. The man's condition, the Savior's care was to communicate to him, to draw out his faith and to express his matchless love for this person. And finally, I want us to look at the people's conception. Notice what they say. Verse 36, and he charged them that they should tell no man. Now, why did he say that? We've seen this before. I think it's simply most likely this. Jesus didn't want to, to, to have an incomplete picture of who he was. He didn't want to be seen only as the healer, have his ministry affected only by those who wanted something. He came to be the healer and the savior, to be the one who came to deliver people from their physical uh, 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 maladies, but even more so from their spiritual ones. And so now Jesus is saying, don't go. Don't go spread this around. But notice what they say, what it says. The more he charged them, so much the more a great deal they published it. And verse 37 says, and we're beyond measure astonished, saying, he hath done all things well. He makes the deaf to hear and the dumb, the mute to speak. I want you to pause for just a moment here, friends. These Gentile people who surrounded him had seen very little of what Jesus had done. They only saw little snippets. Maybe they had heard about him healing the demoniac, the one that had the legion of devils. Maybe they had heard about here the deaf to, to man to speak. Maybe they had seen other miracles that they had done, and they are astonishing. He has done everything well. How much more do you know about Jesus than they did? You have all four Gospels that give you as full an account as God wanted us to have of everything that Jesus did. Not just one little snippet of things over a very short period of time. Not only that, I trust that if you're a Christian here today, you've seen and known Jesus work in your own life. You haven't just seen what he's done for other people. You've seen... Jesus has made a difference in my life. He's forgiven me my sins. He's had his fingerprints all over my life in ways that I look back and see again. Friends, what excuse do we have not to be as amazed as they were? What excuse do we have not to be saying over and over of Jesus, he does everything well to see that he is a marvelous Savior, that he is amazing in what he does. Friends, how often is it when you read your Bibles in the morning that you just pause and say, Jesus, you really are amazing. You do everything well. How often when we are hearing the word preached or when we're talking about it to someone else, we just need to stop and, and it's just like our heart overflows to say, Jesus, you really do everything well, don't you? This is just like you. You're so amazing. See, what I'm getting at is this. This is the heart of worship. 
We have an idea in our culture today that worship is praise and worship. When we get together in a church and we sing together and there's this, there's this kind of just schedule that we go through. That's not worship. At least it's not necessarily worship. What is worship? Worship in the Bible is far more about what happens inwardly in you than what happens externally. Worship is what happens when you see something about the character of God, about the truth of his word, and your heart resonates like a string. If you go over to that piano and and you pluck a string, do you know what's going to happen to the strings around it? They're going to start vibrating a little bit too. And it's like this. When we experience the truth of God's word, maybe we read it, maybe we hear it preached, maybe we sing it, there's something true and it goes into our hearts and our hearts start vibrating like a string. And we say, it's true. You are wonderful. You do love me. You have died for my sins according to the scripture. You are alive right now. You are coming back one day to judge the living and the dead. And your heart vibrates. Sometimes it vibrates with love. Sometimes it vibrates with conviction. And you say, I've been a terrible fool. Sometimes it vibrates with hope. Sometimes it vibrates with joy. But your heart, the string of your heart is moving and your heart is bowing before God. Do you know what that is? It's worship. It's worship. Friends, do not think that we worship because we know the the words of the song and we know the tune. Don't think that we worship just because we experience a certain feeling when we sing certain songs. That's not worship. I've said it before, I'll say it again. A wonderful example that is given for worship is this. There's a big difference between laughing because you've been tickled and laughing because you heard a joke and thought it was funny. One is just a response to a physical stimulation. Another is something goes into your mind and you respond. And you see, we think worship sometimes is when the music physically stimulates me in a way that I feel it. No. What's true worship? When the truth of God comes into your mind and into your heart, and like a joke that you think about and laugh about, you respond to the truth that has penetrated your heart and made the strings of your heart vibrate. Friends, do you know how to worship like that? Is that what happens when we open our hymnals and sing together? When we open our Bibles or get on our knees and pray in the morning? That we are looking to have our hearts come alive with the truth of what we have heard. What did these people see? They saw something marvelous. And they responded, he has done everything, all things well. Friends, we have no excuse with everything we have seen of Jesus in the word of God, with everything we experience of Jesus in our daily lives, I trust by what he's doing to conform you to the image of God. We have no excuse if we regularly don't become amazed, marvel, become astonished, and worship and praise him in response. You know, friends, if we really thought about it, this is what our hymns are trying to communicate to us over and over again. We sing hymns like, how great thou art, how great thou art. And the author of the hymn is saying, do you mean it? What was the first hymn we sang this morning? I stand amazed 
in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner, condemned, unclean. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love to me. And the hymn writer saying, do you mean it? Is your heart vibrating when you sing it? Do you know this is what heaven's going to be forever? It's going to be heaven forever. We get a, a, a curtain pulled back for us in Revelation chapter 4 to get a little picture of what's going on in heaven right now. And we see the throne and surrounding it are 24 elders, they're called. They, I think, are depicting all of the children of God across every age, from his old covenant people to his new covenant people. And we see here what is happening as they hear God praised, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Do you know what they do? They fall down on their face before him. And do you know what they say? You are worthy, O Lord. You are worthy. And do you know forever you'll be saying over and over again, in response to what you see of the character of God and what he has prepared for you, you're just going to be saying he's worthy. You're wonderful. How amazing. You know, see that hymn we sang today, Love Divine, All Loves of Excelling. The last verse says, Finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee. Change from glory into glory till in heaven we take our place. Listen to this. Till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. You'll be lost in wonder, love, and praise. Are you today? Is the experience of your spiritual life, you know one of wonder and amazement at a truly marvelous Savior? If not, friend, why not? Why not? Let's go back to that two-year-old boy sitting in a coach bus, looking around, bus, bus, bus. Bus. Do you know it's been an awful number of years since Lars looked at buses and said, bus, bus, bus. Do you know what's amazing for that going on nine-year-old boy? What's amazing now is how to put a little round ball in a little round hoop. It's the predatory habits of big cats. That's pretty amazing to that boy right now. Someday, maybe girls will be, oh, God forbid, there will be other things that he will find marvelous and astonishing and amazing. Why? Because buses don't seem that cool anymore because he's seen them everywhere. He's just gotten familiar with them. And there's always going to be something new and, and something exciting. And I wonder, friends, whether for some of us we've just lost our wonder and our amazement because we've frankly just gotten too familiar with the greatest truths, the spiritual truths we get so wrapped up in the amazement of the physical world and all the busyness we have over and over again that we forget to step back and let spiritual realities control our mind. Spiritual truths truly let our hearts vibrate. Even when we come to worship, we're, we're focused more on what's going to come after church than the spiritual truths that are being communicated and expressed right here. Friends, let's not lose our wonder Let's not lose our astonishment and our amazement. Let's make sure that today and each day that follows, we're stepping back to take the time 
to communicate to ourselves, to allow the Holy Spirit to resonate our hearts with the greatest truths of Jesus, a marvelous Savior. So that just like these people of old, our message will be over and over again, he has done everything well. And that our own marvel, our own awe, our own wonder, like that little two-year-old boy, will be an expression of the greatest delight and the greatest joy in a truly marvelous Savior.